praise God. Open up to 2 Samuel chapter 12, please, as we continue to speak about David's life. Certainly not one of the high points of his life. Actually, it's the lowest point of his life. Anybody here last week for last week's sermon? Yes. Okay, please, if you weren't here last week, you might want to listen to last week's sermon uh, as it goes hand in hand with part three here, actually, of uh, the last two weeks. Forgive me, the last two weeks. Let's open up to uh, verse 1, chapter 12. I will read most of chapter 12, up to verse, actually starting chapter 11. I apologize. Bill, could you get chapter 11, verse 26 up there? Before I start to read. Okay, here we go. Are we ready? This is God's word. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Oh, I'm sorry. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat from his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul and gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And this And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, because you, 
by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in, and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do him some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he had asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was still alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedediah because of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand everything that we can possibly drain, all the truth from this scripture, God. Help us in our own Christian life, our own Christian profession, Father God. Help us as we long to love you and obey you and honor you, God. Let us learn the lessons of David's life, Father God. Teach us, anoint us, give us understanding and grace we ask, Father God. And most of all, God, let us see just how magnanimous you are. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you guys, but I love a good crime drama. Anybody? What is it, CSI, right? That's a good one? I'm still watching Law and Order, so that'll let you know where I'm at. But I personally like Law and Order a lot, okay? But that's what we have today. Chapter 11, if you were here last week, we reconstructed the crime scene with all the yellow tape and the detective searching out clues and all the forensic forensic evidence going on was extracted. The witnesses were arranged, then on to the courtroom drama. I love that. That's why I, I like Law and Order. It, it does that. You know, you, you end up in the courtroom where the whole story is put together and the prosecutors bring their case forward and the judge presides over the whole case. That's what 2 Samuel 11 and 12 is. 11 is the crime scene. We saw that last week. Today is the courtroom drama. The evidence is in. Guarded the judges presiding over the whole thing. And we're going to get God's perspective on chapter 11. We didn't see it yet. All we have is the closing argument in 11 that the thing that David did had displeased the Lord. But first, we must review a couple of key points from last week's exposition of chapter 11. So again, if you haven't heard last week, you weren't here, please listen to it. Chapter 11 is what happened when a powerful man, David, a good man, David, 
with the royal authority, David, lapses into moral perception. He ruined it. He abuses authority for personal gain, a lustful gain. Some personal gain, people do things for money, they do for things for power and prestige, other people do it for sex. Unfortunately, this was David's downfall. There was a real moral lapse and a collapse of this good man. What drives the whole story is one seemingly insignificant word that we picked up on last week. The one word, can you remember the word? Send. Send, Send or sent. The noun or the verb. It's used quite often in First and Second Samuel as a word that kings would use to send men into battle. It's a royal authority to send and not be questioned. You cannot question the king's authority. It's his royal authority. It's his prerogative. When exercised, it cannot be questioned. That is what David did well in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel and 2 Samuel chapter 10. But in chapter 11, he uses his authority in the wrong way. He abuses royal authority as the king to send, not to go out to war, but to inquire about the naked and beautiful woman that was walking on the rooftop next to him. It's all summed up in this verse, 2 Samuel 11, 3 and 4. Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elim, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent. No one could question him. David sent by royal authority messengers that could not question David, and they took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Let me tell you something about Bathsheba. She's a good woman. Make no mistake about it. She comes from a good family, and she's married to an upright soldier in David's army. A matter of fact, both Elim and Uriah were David's personal bodyguard. They were called David's mighty men. You can see that in 2 Samuel 23. She is from good stock. In God's eyes and her husband, in God's eyes, she and her husband are like the innocent ewe lamb in our parable. They are loved by God. I don't want anyone to miss this part of the parable when I get into it. Do not miss this. Bathsheba was not an accomplice. It wasn't consensual. She was taken away from her husband under divine fiat, under royal fiat, and made to sleep with him. Make no mistake about it. I'll explain more in my sermon. In spite of her pedigree, David's lust proves too great. And in the greatest fight of this warrior's life, David's a warrior, he's in the biggest fight of his life, and it's not against the Philistines or the Ammonites, it's against himself. There's one proverb says that greater is the man that can control his own spirit than a man that can take a whole city. 
We think, wow, man took a whole city over here. You know what I mean? And God says, no, that doesn't impress me. The man who can control his own sexual appetites and his own pride, and his own, that's the man that God sees. And that's who David always was until this match. The rest is history. David does the unthinkable, calls for Bathsheba. It's not consensual. It's rape. Both the 11th chapter and the 12th chapter exonerate Bathsheba from any wrongdoing. There are some that try to find some kind of sensuality with Bathsheba. You know why? Because it's called confirmation bias. We don't like to find things wrong with our leaders. We were sort of blind to the faults of the people we love and admire. And we don't even realize it. We read David as we don't, we don't want to think David's a real heel. But David's a real heel. It's as simple as that. The mighty Casey has struck out, period. We got to quit on David and think of another great king to come. That is the lesson. Israel realized as great as a man and warrior as David was, he is not the perfect representative. Someone else eventually has to come. In God's eyes, David is the man and no one else. David's sin leads to a cascade of deception that leads to murder and cover-up. David reveals a callous side to him we've never saw in Scripture. He seems indifferent to Uriah's murder. The chapter ends with God's disapproval. But between chapter 11 and 12, a time lapse of one year has taken place before our text tonight. One year. And in that time, according to Psalm 32, if we could put Psalm 32 up there, I mentioned it a little bit last week. David says this. It was a long year before Nathan rebuked him. I'm going to take a moment. Let's wait till we get that up there. 32, 3 and 4, if you have your Bible. Okay. All right, blesses the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Three and four. Okay. For when I kept silent, I'm going to paraphrase. Everybody with me? Okay. For when I kept silent that whole year, it was brutal. My bones were wasted away. Psychosomatic. I was groaning all day long. I couldn't turn to the left. I couldn't turn to the right. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, Lord. My strength to think, my strength to love, my strength to be loved was dried up by the heat of the summer. That year was absolutely miserable for David. He was amongst the living dead. It was one long year on David's conscience. Tormented on the inside from his own sin, there was nowhere to hide from God's heavy hand of discipline. David is a ruined man. He's undone a shell of a man who once was a mighty warrior. When you read 2 Samuel after 12, it only goes downhill for this man in his whole house. It's a brutal experience to read, but go on and read it. David's ruin. David was an empty and isolated man for that whole year. He never had real fellowship with God. He's gone rogue. But guess what? He's still God's king. 
And all God's children say, Amen. Amen. When God makes a promise to a child, no matter how dirty we can get, God remains faithful to us. Everyone remember that. You might not fall into the sin of David, but you will fall into sin. And you need as much faithfulness to get out of your sin as David needed to get out of his. So when we read these things, we, we tread very lightly to bring any kind of judgments against David. Chapter 12 begins where chapter 11 ends with God. This time we'll see who's really in authority over here. Chapter 11 is the crime scene. Chapter 12 is the courtroom drama. Let's go to our text. Let's read 2 Samuel 12, 1 with some thoughts. And the Lord sent, everybody say sent. sent. Who's doing the sending now? Who's did the sending before? Who's really in charge? All right. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and one poor. And the Lord sent Nathan. It's God's turn to do the sending. It's God's turn to roll up his sleeves and show David who is really the boss here. And it's not David. God gave David a full year to come to repentance, even while he was disciplined. But he was so despondent, he was so broken on the inside, he was so confused, he couldn't put two thoughts together. He could not repent. His heart had become so calloused because of his sin. It's God's turn to start doing the sending. Where David has authority over his subjects and no one can question, God has authority over all the kings of the earth. And David was just one of them. God is in the driver's seat now, and guess what? He's not happy. A crime has been committed in God's kingdom by God's king, and no one on earth will question David. Don't miss it. Let me give you a little insight. Everybody knew of David's sin. There's only one man that God can rely upon, and that was Nathan, God's spokesman. Let me tell you something about the prophets of the Old Testament, of which Nathan is doing right now. God's prophets are not intimidated by anyone. Their sole purpose is to speak on behalf of God. When you look at it, they come out of nowhere. The prophets would come out of nowhere. Bringing a message of woe. God sends Nathan, Nathan as a prosecuting attorney. This is a courtroom drama, don't forget. It starts in verse 1 of chapter 12. It's a courtroom drama. Nathan comes in as a prosecuting attorney to bring charges against David and demand justice. But he does it in a unique way. He comes by way of a parable. It's God's parable. David doesn't think it's a parable. David doesn't think it's a metaphor. David really thinks this is a real story. Let me give you an understanding of what the king's job was. The king would rule between discrepancies. If it was a small discrepancy, maybe one of the elders of the city gate would take care of it. But major discrepancies, that was the king's job, to rule for one or rule against the other. So when Nathan the prophet comes with this story, it's David's job to rule. What are we going to do with this man? And David said, he dies. That's what you do to him. He dies and he has to compensate for the lamb. 
Nathan comes with a parable. You know it's God's. These are God's sentiments. This is how God sees the whole crime scene. Are you ready? Can you follow? Now listen. Remember this. The rich man is David in our story. And the poor man is Uriah. At times I might paraphrase so you can understand. The rich man, listen to 2 Samuel 2 to 6. Who is that? Goodness me. Praise God. Praise God. Oh, man. Okay. I need verse 2 up. I need verse 2 up. Okay, the verse 2 is. Everybody with me? Father, bless Jackie back there. Get her a tissue. Okay, a little comic relief. All right, we don't mind that. Okay, follow with me. This is serious. The rich man had very many flocks. That's David. But the poor man, that's Uriah, had nothing but one little ewe lamb. Who is that? Remember, this is God's perspective. This is not Nathan's perspective. This is God's perspective. In God's eyes, Bathsheba was precious. Which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew with him. That's what a marriage is. It grows together. And with his children. It used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, David, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock, that's David's many wives, or her to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man Uriah's lamb, that's his wife, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Understand something. The parable is meant to stir David's right use of his authority. For a year, this man's despondent, as Psalm 32 says. Now a case is brought before him, and he's, he's alive again. He hears this injustice. David was a man, he was a king, he was a just king. The parable is meant to stir David's right use of authority for justice and not self-serving. David, a shepherd by vocation, would have taken this story very serious. To David, this was a real life story. He's probably seen it before. He's a shepherd. He was a shepherd's son. He grew up a shepherd and now he's the king's shepherd. And David responds is all God wants. Self-incrimination. David is now awake from his slumber. God has him right where he wants him. He must die. The crime was so bad, David says, he must die. Listen to David's anger, verse 5 and 6. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against that man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David brings the verdict on himself. Death and restoration. Listen to how Nathan goes. Verses 7 and 8. 
Nathan said to David, you are the man. Let's stop for a moment. At that moment, David's heart sunk to the floor. He's been hiding for a year thinking no one knows. Besides that, everybody knows. God knows. And now the chickens are coming home to roost. There is nowhere to hide. He's undone. His sin is before the whole nation. His sin is before his whole court. His sin is before the eyes of the Lord. He's absolutely undone. He just gave the verdict on himself. What he has done is nothing less than an atrocity. Let me read on. It gets worse. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Basically, I'm going to paraphrase. How dare you, David? I anointed you king over Israel. How dare you, David? I delivered you out of the hands of Saul for 20 years. He tried to kill you, and I saved you, David. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. I took you from tents, and I gave you a castle. And I made you king over Israel and Judah. And David, if that was too little, I would add to you as much more as I could. David, why have you despised the word of the Lord and committed adultery? Why have you despised the word of the Lord and murdered Uriah the Hittite? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the enemy, the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Understand something. David must have sank as low as a man can possibly go. If you read all the scripture, I'm familiar with it all. There's probably no lower point anywhere in scripture where you will find a believer. Not even the prodigal son of Luke 15 has fell this low. This is as far as a man of grace can go. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. There's no restitution. There's no apologies. There's nothing he can do. It's over. His life and ministry are over. His whole self-deceived lie comes crashing down on him. But isn't that what sin does? You, you, you think you're getting away with something, even though you're dying on the inside. Fine, David finally has to admit what everyone else already knew. He's the man. Self-loathing is the only emotion David knows now. He's despondent and broken. David has to listen to the indictment now. He has to relive all God's grace to him, how he brought him from nothing and made him king. It must have hurt to the core. When David was sending for Bathsheba, he was at the height, the pinnacle of all his authority. And now he's nothing but just a man of sin. Just a garden variety sinful man. Nothing pleasing about him. Nothing special about him. It's over. 
as he has to remember who he was and where God brought him from and all the grace upon grace in David's life. From a shepherd boy, the least in his own family, to be king over Israel. All the authority he used properly, he's now abused. This was a brutal realization to him. And to think he killed an honorable man at the hands of God's despised enemy, the Ammonites. God hated the Ammonites. David used a despised enemy to take down an honorable soldier. The verdict is in. David is the man, just a man. He's not a great king. He's just an ordinary garden variety sinner, period, who fell slain by his own lust. But now comes the judgment. David has to take some of his own medicine. The same medicine he told Joab last week in chapter 11. Listen to 11.25. Is that 11.25? Oh, okay. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Does it mean anything to you? It's David's turn to be devoured by the sword. The sword shall never leave your house. You want to send people around killing people, David? You want to take the sword of an Ammonite and kill Uriah the Hittite, my man? Well, guess what? Now your children are going to die by the sword. God's a serious, serious hombre. Don't miss that. This God of grace that we have is one serious God. Not to be taken lightly. As David took Bathsheba away from Uriah... Through adultery and rape. Then he took Uriah away from Bathsheba by killing him at the hand of the enemy. God will now take away all four sons of David that should have rightful place on the throne. So as to repay the fourfold compensation of Exodus 22. Why don't you put up Exodus 22? David was a man of the word of God. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, this is the law, and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. David knew that the man had to be die and then restore. God chose not to kill David, but to actually kill four of his children. They weren't good people. So, Starting with this child that David fathered from his sin was the first child. It was birth, not in love. The child was birth in murder and lust. David takes the child. God takes the child home to him. The next son to die was actually in the next chapter, Ammon. Then Absalom. Ammon actually dies from his brother Absalom. Absalom dies from his uncle Joab. And Abinadjah dies from the hand of Solomon himself. There is nothing, nothing but a broken family for the, next, the rest of these chapters. 
There's nothing but espionage after espionage after espionage. The whole house is ruined. Go home and read the rest of 2 Samuel and see how it plays out. David's house was never the same. His own flesh and blood became his greatest enemy. But judgment continues. Listen to 11 and 12. Is that 11 and 12? There we go. No. 12, 11, and 12. Take a moment. Are we there? That is not it. Okay. Let's follow now. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. That's actually his son. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of of the son. That means all Israel. For you did it secretly, but I will do this before all Israel and before the son. What David did in secret, God will do in front of all Israel. This was actually fulfilled in chapter 16. As you read, you will see. Listen to verse 13 and 15. More judgment, but now it's tempered by grace. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's the grace. That might not seem like much now, but when I expound on uh, Psalm 51, you will see how much this means, okay? Nevertheless, because you did this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is be born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. David's words, I have sinned against the Lord, seem weak and pitiful. But Psalm 32 and 51 goes to show the depth of David's genuine repentance. David scorned, that means despised God's holy law through adultery, rape, and murder. Let me tell you something about David. David was a theologian. He was a scholar. When a king was put on the throne, the first thing he had to do was study the Old Testament, the first five books, and write it out by hand. He had to write the whole five books out by hand and memorize it. David knew immediately when he heard the parable, Exodus 22.1, he's got to die and pay the fourfold. Self-incrimination. He knew the law. His conscience was aware. The child must die because, like I said, it was born out of lust and murder. Follow with me as I close a couple of things here. Listen to 12, 24 to 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. It sounds like this is like the next day, but actually it's a couple of years later. Okay? I don't know. I tried to find exactly that. I couldn't find it, but this is a couple of years later. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved Solomon and sent a message by Nathan, the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. That was his prophetic name, loved of the Lord. That's what uh, Jedidiah means, loved of God. God passed over the first son. Because, let me explain something to you. 
parable that Nathan gave was an indictment against David because of how much God cherishes a healthy marriage. David didn't think twice about ruining a healthy marriage. Let no man separate what God has joined together. This fact of the scripture is overlooked all the time. God was dead serious when he said that child Bathsheba was like a a little ooh lamb. Precious. She was precious in God's sight. She was precious to Uriah. The marriage of Uriah and Bathsheba was precious to God. Every marriage is precious to God. And David went into this precious marriage and ripped it apart. Had no pity whatsoever. He didn't consider the wife. He didn't consider Uriah. He didn't consider his father-in-law. He didn't consider the nation. He went and he took what he wanted when he wanted. And he did what he wanted to do when he wanted it without no consideration. That's why the, the scriptures teach us here that God despised. He was scorned. David scorned the word of the God. Surely you would think the story is over now. But by God's grace, David loves Bathsheba. And by God's grace, Bathsheba loved David. Only in the kingdom of grace. Understand something. God takes what's been broken by our own self-inflicted wounds and he brings healing. Please understand this. This is the God we serve. Right when you think it's got to be over, I ruined my life. Who shows up? God. And you make sure the message is sent. Oh, you call him Solomon. But in my eyes, he's loved the Lord. This is incredible. This is an incredible redeeming story of God's grace. It says a lot about God when he disciplines his children. Consequences had to come. We learn from consequences, don't we? David learned from his consequence. He didn't throw Bathsheba out. He took her in. She became his wife. He loved her. She loved him. And they bore a child. And he became the next king. And he was a mighty king. He had his own failures, but he was mighty. There is now a successor to David's throne. David was promised that there will always be a child on the throne. You will always have a son, an everlasting kingdom. But after David blew it, surely the promise is over, right? When God makes a promise, it's unconditional. It's not based on how great we are. We'll suffer the consequences. But understand something. God will fulfill his promise in our life. When God said he's going to bring you to heaven, guess what? Ain't nothing getting in the way. 
Sin is not going to get in the way. Satan's not going to get in the way. Death is not going to get away. Trial, tribulation, nakedness, sword, and famine can never get in the way of what God has decided to do for you and decided to do for me. For he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it, no matter how many Uriahs died, no matter how many things happened. The last thing God wants us to do is to fall into sin, but you check it out. We will suffer under our own seeds of destruction from time to time. And guess who's there to pull it up? God. Only God can make the bitter and turn it sweet. Hopefully God has been taking things in your life and turning them sweet. I look at this crowd and I know there's no bitterness in here because you're all perfect. This is a perfect spotless crew. But we know that's not true. God has always taken the bitterness in our life and our choices and our actions and, and bring something sweet out of it. Only God can do that. God wears us down with grace. He wears us down with grace. He, he just wears you down to the point you surrender and say, God, I'm all yours now. I've tried it my way. I've been burned so many times. God just, and that's what David did. The story of David and Bathsheba is, yes, a cautionary tale in one sense. But more than that, it's God is faithful to the promises he made. And everyone needs to know that. God is faithful to all of us. Praise God. Let's give him our best. Let's learn to give him our best. Let me a couple of uh, applications and we'll go forward. One I just said, God never gives up to us, gives up on us, and, and, and we should rejoice in that. The first one is real simple. Be careful all the time. David was just walking around on a hot day one day and his whole life fell apart. He never knew when he was going to be ready for battle. You know what? For once in his life, David did not put on the full armor of God. He was not ready for the schemes of Satan. It's as simple as that. There's nothing deep and theological about this now. David fell to his own lust. He was not prepared to fight that day. And it overwhelmed him. Understand something, Christian man and Christian woman. The Bible says, be careful that you think you stand lest you fall. There's no temptation that is overtaking you that's not common to all human beings. But God is faithful and will provide a means of escape when it comes. Please. We could all fall into, if not the same sin similar things if we're not careful there is a cautionary tale here as God's people we have to be careful at all times and I shared last week David didn't seek anybody's counsel he was willful and he ran and he paid the consequences today we should surround ourselves with many good brothers and sisters in Christ so when temptation comes and I've shared this you know I, I tell my wife everything because I don't want to end up like David that's why I love my wife I love God and I love you and, but I'm a man. And I make sure that my wife knows what's going on. My brother-in-law knows what's going on. My friends know what's going on. And when things get tough, all I do is pick up my phone and say, pray for me. My, my wife knows right away. I got two or three brothers. Pray for me. They know right away. That's an SOS. Something's going on in my heart. And I need prayer in me. It never fails. Listen to me. Look at me. If you go into a challenging temptation time, you need to have two or three men with the men, women with the women, two or three people around you. You can reach out confidentially and say, pray for me. You don't have to get into it. They know immediately. 
I want to ask you a question. What's the first thing you do when you get that Amber Alert? Boom, 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 Amber Alert. What's the first thing you do? Everybody should say pray. I don't pray fast enough. When I hear Amber Alert, I'm on my knees if I'm anywhere. And I pray for that child. That's how it is when you go to a time of temptation. You reach out to someone and say, pray for me. That's it. That's Amber Alert. We all know what's going on here. It's a real world. Falling into sexual sin is a real world. I want to talk to the youth. I want to talk to the young. Be careful out there. Be careful of the young. Be careful of the young men. Be careful of that kind of stuff. God wants you pure and innocent. God wants to bring you a wonderful husband one day and to raise a wonderful family. Keep your eyes on God. Keep your, the time will come for that other stuff. Keep your eyes on God. Life is serious. And me and John can, and Patty can testify that, unfortunately, we've seen much, much of spiritual abuse go in this direction. Okay, I'll close with this one. Proverbs 6.23, if we can put that up there. For the commandment is a lamp and teaching of light. And the teaching of light. And the reproofs or rebuke of disciplines are the way of life. When David could not reach down and take care of himself, God loved him so much that he sent Nathan. Don't you know something about Christianity by now? God's always bringing some kind of correction to our blind spots. God's always trying to bring correction to our weaknesses. You know how many weaknesses and blind spots are represented in this room right here? I know you all look good, and and I know I look wonderful. We're just a bunch of weak people. There are no superstars. I'm no superstar. You're no superstar. No one is. That's the point. And reproof or constant rebukes are the way to a healthy life. David needed to be rebuked before he fell. Not after. But David didn't ask for help. We need to ask for help. Don't leave this room if you know there are known weaknesses in your heart that are prone to wander in certain directions. Don't do it alone. Let me tell you what's going to happen. It's going to be a lesson of frustration, and it's going to lead you down the wrong path. It's going to lead you down the wrong path. We need to have these blind spots and these weak spots in our nature. We need to be made aware of them. What keeps us strong is knowing our weaknesses. Are you with me? I remember once I was getting ready to fight in the European Karate Championships. Big venue. Back in 1991, I did 92 around there somewhere. And uh, I got all tapes on all the people I might have to fight. And I studied them. And I studied them. There was this one gentleman, he was the champion. He had a devastating left hook. Devastating. I watched him drop man after man after man with one punch. I fought this guy at the end in the championship, and, and my arm did not leave my side at all. Man. It basically busted my arm, but if my arm wasn't tight, I, I, I wouldn't have made it. And you have to know the strength of the enemy, and you have to know your own weakness. And let me tell you something about the enemy. He's strong. He took down Adam. He took down David. He went toe-to-toe with Jesus in the desert. He's not worried about you and me. 
We pose no threat when we're on our own. Let me say it again. We pose no threat to Satan when we try to do it alone. Don't you know what Peter says? That your enemy, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's not going to waste his time on people that are close to God and close to each other. He's going to pick apart the people on the peripheral, the marginal, who just come and just, just get by. Give Satan a just get by Christian and I will show you a toy in Satan's hand. Cautionary tale. Father, we come before you, Lord God, and we trust in you, Father God. We thank you that you took David's horrific, scandalous sin and you turned it into Jedediah, loved by God. And as David saw his life fall apart from this moment on, he could always look at Samuel and say, Solomon and say, loved by God, loved by God, loved by God. It was the tangible evidence that God still loved David and did not give up on him. Father, thank you that you never give up on us. We don't look to Solomon we look to Christ to remember you never give up on us God we look to the cross God that says you'll never leave us nor forsake us Father God we look to the cross Father God we're always looking for the cross Father God keep us strong make us aware of the enemy's strength and make us aware of our own personal weaknesses Father God help us in our endeavor to live holy before you Father God we love you we cherish you Father God and as we all go home and study Psalm 51 we'll get prepared to hear David's repentance and how sweet it is. In Jesus' name, amen.